This is the story. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands have just marked for salvation. Good morning, Lake City. It is great to see you today. Good morning to those of you joining us online today, and we welcome you as well. And a special welcome to Janessa Randall to officially be on our missionary family. We are delighted about that. Just a little fun fact. Uh, our family met Janessa's family, uh, 30, I think it was 39 years ago in Eugene, Oregon, where we were together in the same church when I was right out of seminary. And so we've known her for a long time, and we're so excited to see Janessa end up here at JBLM. And and at Lake City. So we're very excited about Janessa being here and working with Cadence. Okay, so what comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, connect the dots? Here's what comes to my mind. So uh, something, something like that, right? Remember these fun things you did as a kid or you've done with your children or maybe with your grandchildren? And sometimes they're super easy, right? Like, like this one. You can tell right away what that is without even connecting the dots. Sometimes they're just a little bit more difficult. Okay, have no idea what that one is. Uh, our text today is about the disciples failing to connect the dots and our Lord's rebuke of them for it. And so we're going to jump right into the text and into the backdrop of the text or the setting. And... Uh, there's two events in Mark 6 that are coupled together, and they are the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. And these miracles come right after the rejection stories at the beginning of Mark chapter 6, including Jesus' rejection when he spoke at the synagogue in Nazareth. Mark 6 also included the uh, death of John the Baptist and that news reaching our Lord and the disciples. And it also comes after the Lord sent out the 12 apostles on that missionary, mission trip, so to speak, to uh, teach and to heal and to cast out demons. They've just come back from that mission trip in our text today, and they're going to give a report to the Lord. And that's when these two miracles take place. You know, with the increasing rejection, Jesus began to spend less time preaching in public and more time instructing his disciples privately. And so we're now in this period of sort of intensive preparation of the disciples. And by the way, it's significant, I believe, that of all the miracles that occurred during the ministry of Jesus, only two are recorded for us in all four of the Gospels. One of those is the resurrection of Christ, and the other is the event that we're looking at today. And I take it, therefore, that this was a very significant event. This is huge in the overall plan of Christ. And I see Jesus using this incident to teach his followers something that was going to impact their understanding of ministry for the rest of their lives. Now, I admit that I like to sort of mentally try to picture the scene that we're reading about, and so... At this point, Jesus and his disciples are on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This isn't the exact place, but this is a picture of the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, what it looks like today. The other part of this story that I like to recreate in my mind 
is the crowd of people that were gathered for this scene. And when we get down to verse 44, uh, we're, we're going to learn that there were 5,000 men in the crowd this day. We don't know for sure how many women and children were also there, but most scholars suggest that the total crowd was in the 10 to 20,000 range. So this was a massive group of people gathered together. We also know that a fair number uh, in the crowd were sick. Uh, likely some of them came there on stretchers. They were lame. Others had diseases. Some of them were likely blind. So just um, if you can, imagine this huge group of people, many of them clamoring to be healed, looking and longing for health. That's the scene that we're looking at today. By the way, in the TV miniseries, The Chosen, the feeding of the 5,000 I hear is coming up at the end of this season. Dallas Jenkins, the director of The Chosen, made this comment. He said, watching Jesus feed the 5,000 has been the coolest part of this whole project. So that's yet coming. Uh, look forward to that. I encourage you, if you aren't already, to watch The Chosen. You can download that app for free and watch that with your friends and family. I think you'll be very inspired. It's, it's very stimulating. So again, try to picture this scene in your mind's eye, all these thousands of people going in desperation, looking for healing, looking for Jesus, and longing to have him change their lives. And as we begin our examination of this pivotal event in the disciples' education, bear in mind that you and I are a lot like them. We're reading about something in their lives, but I think it's here for a reminder of how much we are like them. So let's pick it up at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So they gave the results to Jesus of the mission trip that they just came back from. And by the way, Mark is the only gospel writer who tells us that they were so busy that they didn't even have a chance to eat. Keep that fact tucked away. When the disciples tell Jesus to send the crowd home to find food, listen, I don't think it's just for the benefit of the crowd. All right. Their stomachs are growling, too. And this really tickles me. They, they've had a long, hard day themselves. So I don't think they're just interested in getting food for the crowds, getting rid of the crowds to find food. I think it was for their benefit as well. And I have to admit, the way I picture this all going down, I can't help but wonder, you know, as the disciples are going around with the baskets of food, aren't they kind of maybe snitching a little bit themselves, grabbing, grabbing a snack as they, they pass that around? I mean, what do you think? When you're working in the kitchen, do you ever snack a little bit? Okay, yeah, I think they did too. Now, we don't read that in the text. I'm just using a little sanctified imagination at this point. One more thing to notice about how Mark sets the scene. He doesn't say anything about the location. He notes that Jesus said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. In other, way, in other words, he was saying, come away. We're going to go to sort of a wilderness place to be alone. So we come to the miracle now, and it's commonly known as the feeding of the 5,000. And again, the only miracle besides the resurrection recorded for us in all four of the Gospels from what I can tell. Let's pick it up at verse 33. 
Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The crowd of people saw Jesus and the disciples get in the boat and leave. Which direction they were going, they guessed where they might be going. They ran along the shore, and those who could at least, and, and met them in what they was, where they were trying to get to in this desolate place. And it says, Jesus had compassion on them and taught them many things because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Tuck that one away too, like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. That appears to me to be a rather rude um, word from the disciples to the Lord. First, there's no title of respect like usual. They don't say rabbi. They don't call him master. Not, Not here. And secondly, uh, this was a command. It was an imperative that they spoke to him. They didn't ask for help or they didn't suggest it. They said, it's getting late, send them away. Sort of a rude way to talk to the Son of God, don't you think? And I think what's happening is this problem has been festering on their mind all day and now it sort of comes to a head. And I'll explain that in just a minute. First, I want you to hear how Jesus answered them, verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? It would take 200 days worth of wages for an average working person to feed a group that side. They're complaining. So I might be reading between the lines, but I think the disciples are just a little irritated with Jesus by this point. In desperation, they come to him. They say, send the crowds home. And Jesus responds, actually, no, you feed them. And now this is right back on their plate, may I put it. Okay, And they have to deal with what Jesus is asking of them. Now, something that's important for us to understand about the feeding of the 5,000 is that this was a test. Jesus was putting them to the test. Here's what we need to know. Jesus intentionally raised the issue of feeding all these people with Philip. In John's account of this miracle, this is what we're told, John 6, 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. So this is earlier in the day. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. The other gospels, including Mark, talks about the disciples at the end of the day saying, Jesus, send them home. Okay, there's no restaurants around here, so send the people home so they can find food for themselves. But in John's gospel, it says early in the day, Jesus had this conversation with Philip. It's as if Jesus were saying, hey, Philip, What do you think we should do about this? You know, these people are going to be hungry, especially by the end of the day. They're going to be really hungry. What do you suggest we do? Apparently, Philip, we believe he was from that area. He grew up in the closest village to where they were. And so it's Jesus basically saying, hey, Philip, you know this place. 
Any McDonald's around here? Anyway, here's my thinking. I think there is something that Jesus wants to be very clear in the minds of the disciples. And so he drops this problem in their minds early on in the day. The impossible matter of feeding these 10 to 20,000 who were gathered. And all day long, they're thinking, what in the world are we going to do about this hungry crowd? Jesus could have sent them home earlier in the day, but instead... The disciples have to simmer in the juices of this impossible challenge in front of them all day long. I think Jesus set up the situation on purpose. And remember, John tells us he already knew what he was going to do, and this was a test. One more important fact that we need to understand in John's gospel, and John is the one who gives us the most detail about this miracle, John also tells us that the The feast of Passover was at hand. Why is that important? Well, it means that the Jews in this crowd were thinking about Passover. In fact, likely many of them were on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, which celebrated the exodus from Egypt, and they were thinking about all that that involved. We'll come back to that in a minute as well. Interesting as well, John connects this miracle of feeding the 5,000 with Jesus' sermon the very next day, his Bread of Life sermon. John tells us he preached that the next day, and John also tells us that those in the crowd that heard the sermon connected the dots. They made the connection between Jesus and Moses. This is what it says in, in John 6. They said to him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, the crowd says, Jesus, Moses was the great prophet, and he gave us bread. What will you do to prove that you are greater than, or even as great as, Moses? That's the challenge put before him in the Gospel of John. It's also John who tells us that after feeding the 5,000, the people who were there concluded that Jesus indeed was the prophet predicted in Deuteronomy 18, the one who was like Moses. In fact, this is what they said, John 6, 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And John then says, they would have forcibly made him their king if they'd had the opportunity to do that. So Jesus is going to feed the crowds, but he does it by the hands of the disciples. Let's read about that now, beginning at verse 38. And he said to them, to the disciples, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Imagine, if you can, this 
crowd of starving people. And Jesus has them all orderly and organized, sitting in groups of fifties and hundreds. Let's continue, verse 42. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Mark says, all of them ate and were satisfied. The disciples, I, the way I see it, they didn't have to tell anyone, hey, hey just have one, one fish to start with. We don't know if there's going to be enough to go around. I don't think they said, you know, uh, be careful, don't take too much bread. You know, no seconds to later. None of that because it says they all ate and were satisfied. In fact, John says they ate as much as they wanted. Completely satisfied. And I just have a guess that that was some pretty great tasting fish and some pretty wonderful bread. What do you think? I can't imagine Jesus giving them anything but the best. In fact, what comes to my mind is the wedding in Cana. Remember that scene? Jesus' first miracle in Cana. He took the water and he changed it to wine. And what did the head waiter say? He says, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. I think this was a, a good meal. And then we read that there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. Not just the few crumbs and bones, right? I take it that this was substantial leftovers. Plenty of leftovers. Because with Jesus, there was always an abundance. Always plenty. And then it's interesting to me that Mark doesn't give one word of interpretation. He simply moves right on to miracle number two, to walking on the water. And they go together for a reason. Okay, so let's move on to the stilling of the storm. And let's begin by reading the first two verses about that. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. I want you to notice that Mark says Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Some translations use the word or translate it compelled. He compelled them. So this is not a gentle suggestion. It's more like get in the boat. It's time to get going. Right. And the reason I think is that this crowd is fired up and they are ready to make Jesus their king by force. That's what John, in fact, tells us. And at least some of the disciples might have been all for that. They were probably uh, ready as well. But it says Jesus sends the disciples off, he dismisses the crowd, and he goes off by himself to pray. We aren't told what Jesus prayed on this occasion, but take a guess. Just, just imagine. I imagine maybe Jesus praying against this temptation. Remember when Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world? Well, Israel is ready to give Jesus the kingdom here, but on their terms. So Jesus may have been praying for himself and for strength to fulfill the mission God had sent him to accomplish. And I think it's likely that he was also praying for the disciples. Why did they have to be so strongly compelled to get into the boat? Perhaps Jesus was praying that they would see things from God's perspective here. Okay. Jesus <clears throat> looks out onto the lake and he sees them struggling against the winds, against the storm. And this is what we read beginning at verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind 
was against them. So they're at least a few miles from shore, from where Jesus was, out in the middle of the lake. And Jesus sees them struggling in the storm. In fact, look at verse 48 as we continue. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Fourth watch of the night would be 3 to 6 a.m. So they've been out there basically most of the night fighting to row against the storm. He meant to pass them by is an interesting phrase because a lot of people think that that means that Jesus wanted to sort of sneak by them. I don't think so. He wasn't sneaking by and that he got noticed by them. I mean, after all, he, he, verse 48 says he came to them. Remember, these are his disciples. He sent them out there. He loved them. He had a clear plan. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. This was part of his training of them. He didn't mean to pass them by. I believe he went out on the lake to meet them there. And I think the key to understanding this word pass by is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, specifically Exodus 33. If you want, jot down Exodus 33:19. It's the scene where Moses asked God to show himself to him. God, would you reveal your glory to me? Show yourself to me. And God says to Moses, I will pass by you. Same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's actually the cleft in the rock passage where God said, I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'll pass by you to show you my glory. And in the same way, I believe Jesus wasn't trying to avoid the disciples. He was revealing himself to them, something about his glory to them. Well, let's pick it up now at verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Isn't it interesting that their first impulse was, it's a ghost. <laughs> Jesus intended to reassure them, but they perceived his presence in terror. They mistook him for a phantom of some kind. And we pick it up now at the end of verse 50. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. What a great reminder that when we are in the storms of life, Jesus sees us. He knows what we're going through. He comes to us and he says to us, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Literally, take heart, I am Fear not. Now, Mark doesn't choose to include the part of the story that so many of us love, the part where Peter gets out of the boat and tries walking on water. Remember that? He takes his eyes off Jesus and sinks, and Jesus grabs him and helps him back in the boat. Matthew alone tells us the part about Peter, that, that part of the story, and it would go right here before we read verse 51 if it were in the Mark's account. But don't you think it's interesting that Mark, who used Peter as his source of information for this gospel, we believe, don't you think it's interesting that Mark didn't include that in his account? And I think perhaps that is because it was not really a positive experience for Peter. It was more of an embarrassing experience for him. Even though we sometimes make a big deal about Peter's faith and asking to get out of the boat and all that, I want to suggest, and you can check it out on your own, 
I don't think Peter was commended for his faith, okay? In fact, he was rebuked for his lack of faith. And so all of those sermons about, you know, if you want to serve God in a great way, you got to get out of the boat. I don't think that's the purpose of that whole story. That's a totally aside. You can check it out on your own in Matthew's gospel. But let's keep reading at verse 51. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded, utterly astounded because the wind and the waves stopped immediately. Apparently without Jesus saying a single word. And immediately, according to John's account, as Jesus gets into the boat, they are at their destination on shore. So miracle after miracle after miracle all all into one. The other Gospels tell us that at this point, the disciples worshipped Christ and declared, Surely you are the Son of God. And if it weren't for Mark, we might conclude from this miracle of stilling the storm, Jesus walking on the water, we might conclude this is just another great manifestation of our Lord's power. Well, yes and no. It definitely was that. But what Mark focuses on is what they didn't get. Matthew tells us they worshiped Jesus. Mark tells us that they failed to connect the dots. Question. So they had seen many miracles by now, including Jesus stilling a previous storm. So why were they so astonished this time? And I believe that's what Mark explains next in verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Listen, beloved, they missed the lesson because their hearts were hardened. And that's what Mark is focusing on here. Jesus sent them into the storm to teach them a specific lesson, but they missed it. And the astonishment of the disciples really was sort of a mild form of unbelief, which is why I think Jesus rebukes them. Isn't it a sad thing when Christians are amazed when God does something that is godlike? <laughs> It's a sad thing when Christians are amazed that God acts like God. The disciples failed to connect the dots between the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. That's exactly what the text says. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And that word hardened can also be translated dull. Their hearts were dulled or calloused. And I believe that's a danger every single one of us faces. Listen, if these men who lived with Jesus and ministered with him in person for well over a year by this point, almost two years, we think, if they could experience that and miss that, so can we. That's a danger for all of us. And by the way, that word loaves in verse 52, that's the very same word used in Exodus chapter 16 of God providing bread for the Israelite in the wilderness by the hand of Moses. So Mark introduces this theme of their hard hearts here in Mark 6. He's going to come back to it again in Mark 8, where he says this after Jesus fed the 4,000. So different miracle, 5,000 here, 4,000 a couple chapters later. 
And this is what Jesus said to them after feeding the 4,000. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive and understand? Are your hearts hardened? Okay. The disciples had the very same clueless response of astonishment the next time Jesus fed the multitudes. Jesus says, why are you thinking about bread instead of the one who multiplied the bread? What's wrong with you guys? And I just want to say that I think that we are often just like them, or at least I'm often just like them. We fail to connect the dots. So what dots exactly were they failing to connect that day? Folks, they were in a wilderness place, a desolate place. They didn't have bread. It's almost Passover. Remember, year after year, they celebrated this feast that was about God providing for his children in the wilderness. And sometimes we call this the Exodus motif. The Exodus motif. I want to credit a very helpful resource by Bob Deffenbaugh in his study of this passage. Uh, I think it was a dissertation that he wrote in a sermon that he preached on this, the Exodus motif that we see here in Mark 6. Anyway, we see the Exodus motif throughout the Bible. Remember that when Mark says Jesus had compassion on the multitude because they were like sheep without a shepherd? We read that earlier. Well, that comes from the book of Numbers. That's a quote from the Old Testament when Moses said to God, he said, someone needs to take my place and lead your people. Otherwise, they will be like sheep without a shepherd. That's in the wilderness wandering. Okay, So God appoints Joshua to take Moses' place. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the wilderness that God took his people through the Red Sea to rescue them there. And in the wilderness, God provided miraculously for them by giving them manna or bread from heaven. And then Jesus comes along and he provided bread for the multitudes in feeding the 5,000. And he walked on the water to rescue his disciples. And he revealed himself to them in these two watershed miracles that pointed back to the Old Testament and to the Exodus. But they failed to connect the dots. Listen, beloved, I believe Jesus is saying this. You need to connect the dots in your life. Because what God did as a prototype in the Old Testament in Moses, I'm now doing for you today. My people are like sheep without a shepherd, but I'm providing bread for them in the wilderness. I'm delivering you through the waters. The Old Testament foretold what to expect when the one who is greater than Moses will appear. And Jesus is that one. All right. Let me finish reading chapter 6 with you, beginning at verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside... They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Amazing, amazing day. 
All right, let's talk about some lessons that we can draw from Mark 6. Number one, the Lord tests us to develop our faith. The Lord tests us to develop our faith. Remember John 6, 6? Jesus set all of this up to test them. And Jesus still, I believe, he still designs tests for us even today. Not to destroy us, but to develop our faith. And so I'd ask you, maybe are you going through some kind of test right now? Listen, beloved, don't lose heart if you're being tested. Open up your heart to what the Lord wants to teach you. And ask him to show you exactly what he has to say to you. Because God expects us to connect the dots. God expects us to connect the dots and rebukes us when we don't. When we fail to see the connection between what God has done in the past and what he is doing today. Because failing to connect the dots may well be the result of a hard heart. All right, how about some examples of connecting the dots? How about Daniel chapter 9? Daniel's having his quiet time one day. He's reading the scroll of Jeremiah and he's connecting dots. And he realizes that 70 years of captivity are almost over. And so he begins to pray to God and ask God to do what he promised to do. And God sent the angel Gabriel in response to that prayer and gave Daniel much more information. But Daniel was connecting the dots. Luke 24, I think, is one of the best examples in the Bible of connecting dots. It's that day when Jesus had just been resurrected. He's going home with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he's talking with them. And they're saying, we had wished that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus, it says, they didn't recognize him at that point. He kept his identity secret. It says, Jesus took them through the books of Moses and the prophets and connected the dots to prove that Messiah was to suffer and die. Acts 2, Peter's sermon was connecting the dots. Acts 7, Stephen's sermon, another one of connecting the dots. By the way, in my rapture Bible study on Thursday night, this Thursday night, I plan to do some connecting the dots related to Bible prophecy and what's going on in current events in our world today. So if you haven't been able to come and, or haven't been watching online and want to watch this Thursday night, it's going to be an interesting one. I want to encourage you to consider that if you're not busy doing something else. All right, lesson number two. Obedience to Christ doesn't remove all obstacles to doing his will. Obeying Christ doesn't remove all obstacles to living in his will. You know, sometimes we sort of mistakenly think, you know, if we do what God asks us to do, it's going to be smooth sailing. <laughs> Jesus sent the disciples out into the storm, remember? If you see, see yourself in sort of an impossible situation today or in the midst of a storm, one of the things this reminds us is that we might be, you might be exactly where God wants you to be right now. But make sure that you ask him for wisdom and connect the dots. Lesson number three, it is possible to be amazed at Jesus' work and still miss the lessons that he has for us. You can even be worshiping him in the midst of the storm and miss out on what he's trying to teach you. Remember, Jesus rebuked his disciples because of their hard hearts, even though they worshipped him in 
that moment. All right, how about some application? Let's talk about how we can uh, apply this in our own lives today. Number one is this. Next step, number one, I will repent of a heart or a dull heart. I will repent. Again, I think we are so much like the disciples. At least I admit I am. I'm like the disciples. And when I get into that hard place, that storm, it's so easy to take my eyes off the Lord. I look at that impossible task and I begin to doubt. God, what are you doing? Did I, did I make the right decision? You know, Why would we ever be surprised that the God of the Exodus would walk on water to come to us today? to get us, to rescue us. Why are we surprised when the God who is revealed in the New Testament acts like the God of the Exodus? That should not be surprising, right? Listen, beloved, we need to recognize our unbelief. And when we do, we need to repent. We need to confess our dullness of heart and let Jesus take us by the hand and bring us back into the boat. That starts by repenting and confessing. God, help me. Confessing our spiritual dullness. Next step, number two. I will strive to connect the dots by. You can fill in that blank if you would. Connect the dots. Listen, friend, there is no way to connect the dots without reading and studying God's word. And listening to God's word being taught and we need to read and study God's word consistently and sequentially and expositorily and in large doses. Listen, daily bread is great, but it's not enough. And Jesus calling and other um, devotionals are fine, but they're not enough. You also better be deep and long in the word of God. Okay? If you want to connect the dots, you need to get into scriptures every day and stay there for a while and soak in it. And it requires, too, a sense of the whole counsel of God, all of God's word. You need to understand the whole Bible. In other words, you need to understand the Old Testament if you really want to understand the New Testament. We dare not just focus on one part of the Bible or our favorite books of the Bible, right? It's all inspired and it's all valuable for our growth and for our encouragement. So please make time to read and to study and to listen to it often and in large doses. And then finally, maybe there's someone here today or listening online today who hasn't yet connected the dots regarding who Jesus is and what he's all about. And so next step number three is I will connect the dots about Jesus. Connect the dots about Jesus. Listen, God's word is very clear. God created us. Mankind sinned and death came into the world. We were separated from God because of our sin. He's a holy God and our sin separates us from him. All through the Bible, man tried like crazy to live up to God's holy standards, but it didn't work. But the Old Testament spoke of one who was coming, of the Messiah who would come and die in the place of sinners and take our sin upon himself. He went to the cross to bear our penalty, the penalty for our sins so that we can be forgiven. Friends, his name is Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And Mark is describing him for us and what he did for us. And he's going to tell us it's only by faith in Christ that we can find salvation and forgiveness. You have to put your faith in him and his death and resurrection. And when you do that, God will connect the dots, so to speak, between you and himself. You will live forever. You'll have forgiveness of sin and eternal life with him. I want to give you a chance to take that step of faith if you've never done so before. So would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Let's bow and pray. So, Lord, we thank you for your word today. Lord, I confess how easy it is for me to focus on my trials and my pain and my problems and to take my eyes off of who you are and to forget that you are the creator of all. You are the sovereign, powerful king of all. So, God, remind us. Help us to see you clearly. And, Father, I I offer this invitation prayer for anyone listening today. Friend, if if you've never received Christ, I invite you to pray in your heart of hearts. Just silently invite you to ask Jesus to be your Savior today. And you can just say something like this. Say, Father, I need your forgiveness. I invite Jesus into my life today. I, I understand I can't earn forgiveness, but I can receive it as a gift. And so I put my faith in Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of my sin. Thank you that he died on the cross and rose again for me. And I receive that gift right now. Lord, you tell us that the testing of our faith produces endurance. That you have a purpose for testing us, and that is to bring us to maturity, to grow us, to prepare us to use us. So, Lord, we ask you to fill us with your wisdom and help us to connect the dots. As we give ourselves to your holy word, Lord, grow us and prepare us to serve you more faithfully. Lord, you are the only one, as we sang earlier, who can turn graves into gardens, who can turn bones into armies, and beauty to ashes. You are the only one who can, and we praise you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.